Principles of Economics, my complete guide to understanding economics, is now available in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook from safeddean.com, Amazon, and many more booksellers worldwide. And now, I am also teaching a course based on this book on my website, safeddean.com. Principles of Economics will run the whole academic year, from September to June, and will have a new lecture every two weeks, as well as weekly live online discussion seminars open to learners from all over the world and from all walks of life. Whether you're a student, a professional, or a retiree, you are making economic decisions every day, and this course will arm you with the wisdom of centuries of economists to improve your economic decision-making. You'll also get a free book of Principles of Economics if you sign up for the course. Go to safeddean.com and sign up now. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by Orange Pill App, the Bitcoin-only social network that connects you with high-signal Bitcoiners, events, and now merchants as well. If you're like me and can't stop talking about Bitcoin, you know how challenging it can be to talk to the no-coiners and how nice it is to talk to someone who gets you. With the Orange Pill app, you can find the Bitcoiners near you and they can replace the no-coiners in your life. You can organize events and meetups with local Bitcoiners and wherever you travel, you can meet up with local Bitcoiners all while being as anonymous as you like. So if you want to build your local network of Bitcoiners, find a Bitcoin meetup or merchants accepting Bitcoin, head over to orangepillapp.com to sign up or download the app from the App Store or Google Play Store and send me a DM so we can get connected. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by CoinKite. CoinKite are my favorite makers of Bitcoin hardware. They produce the legendary Open Dime, the first Bitcoin bearer asset, as well as the reliable cold card hardware wallet, the excellent stainless steel seed plates for storing your seed phrases, and the block clock. Now, CoinKite have produced the SATS card, a card the size of a credit card which can store Bitcoin and works great as a gift. CoinKite have just produced a limited edition gorgeous Bitcoin Standard SATS card, which carries the Bitcoin Standard logo, and you can get it from coinkite.shop slash Bitcoin Standard. Use the code Bitcoin Standard to get 5% off your purchase. This podcast is also brought to you by the Bitcoin Way, your professional Bitcoin IT team offering you personalized, secure, and comprehensive solutions for every step along your Bitcoin journey. The Bitcoin Way offer live concierge service to guide you with your Bitcoin cold storage, running your node, privacy best practices, inheritance planning, corporate strategy, and multi-sig solutions. They don't touch your coins, they guide you through the process of acquiring your coins and securing them. If you'd like to make your setup safer and more reliable, book a consult with them and see what they have to suggest. If you want to give someone the gift of Bitcoin, get them this professional service that will ensure they start off knowing exactly how to manage their coins and not lose them. Go to thebitcoinway.com and start Bitcoining more confidently. Ahmed, you have a question? Is there any potential for other uh, cryptocurrencies other than uh, Bitcoin to play the role of daily uh, currency um, replacing fiat? Yes. I I mean, I fully see the case of Bitcoin being uh, uniquely uh, different and uh, better than others. But uh, we do have this uh, need of a currency to replace the fiat role in the daily transactions and the daily purchases, etc. So somebody told me that Ethereum could play this role. Well, uh, obviously, I don't uh, agree. I'm still thinking what would be a good 
replacement in a Bitcoin standard to fiat? The answer is to understand the distinction between a settlement network and the payment network. And this is really one key point that I had in the Bitcoin standard. If you look at how many transactions are carried out every day or per second, I did this math in the Bitcoin standard. I think Visa processes up to 2,000 transactions a second all over the world. And then the MasterCard does something similar, probably a little bit less, I think but around the same range. And then you have other networks and other methods of payments that add another few thousand. So probably, you know, consumer to consumer payment, there's probably, I would say conservatively, at least 10,000 transactions a second is the total number of consumer transactions. I don't have this number in the Bitcoin standard. I just have the Visa number, which I think was 2,000. So if you're doing 2,000 transactions per second, Bitcoin can do in best cases around seven. So if you need to scale that by 1,000 fold in order to get to a level where you can handle all consumer payments. So we'd need, conservatively speaking, at least 1,000 Bitcoins to be running their blockchains and making payments in order to scale enough to allow everybody in the world to uh, have their consumer payments put on the Bitcoin blockchain. But if you look at the other currencies as well, they don't do much better. Depends on how you calculate the transaction capacity and depends on how much you value the settlement assurance. It's somewhere in the same order, around seven transactions per second. The main claims about being able to do 10,000 a second or whatever is what many of them will do in their uh, uh, white papers. But this is all like children playing with their toys and saying, you know, my uh, fighter jet is faster than the F-35. It's a toy. You can't compare somebody running a network on their uh, shitcoin that has 700 users and then, you know, saying here, look, we've demonstrated 10,000 payments a second. It's nonsense. If you wanted to run it securely and if you had actual value on the network, that's the key thing. If you had $50 billion transacting on the network every day, you wouldn't be able to achieve it because then, you know, the security problem becomes real. You have actual adversaries trying to attack you wouldn't be able to do anything like the scale. So the point here is that even if you added all the shitcoins to Bitcoin, all of them together might be able to scale, but one individual shitcoin is not going to make the difference. You can't just have Bitcoin and then have Ethereum or uh, one of the other coins work as a second layer because no single one of them will be sufficient to scale to visa level, regardless of whatever their stupid advertisements say. So then if they can't scale to visa level individually, which is the case, then with each coin that you're adding in order to make this new modern uh, payment system, you're going to be introducing another layer of complexity in the money. So the whole point of money, or one of the main points of money, is that it becomes a personal medium of exchange in that everybody trades their labor and their goods for money and then trades money for all the labor and the goods that they have. Everybody chooses one money. That's what allows for economic calculation to happen. That's what allows for trade to expand. It's what allows for people to save. It does all of the things that we talk about in Eco 11 in my course. So the idea that we can live in a world with a thousand currencies is ridiculous. And um, this is something that shitcoiners often say, that, you know, we have a million companies. Why can't we have a million currencies? It's profoundly missing the point of what a currency is and why we need a currency. The whole point of a currency is that you have 
have a universal medium of exchange, not barter. Adding more currencies is just unsolving the problem that money solves. Money is the solution to the problem of lack of coincidence of wants. And then adding another money is reintroducing the problem of the lack of the coincidence of wants. Now you want to buy something, but I want to get paid in something else. We've introduced another layer of complexity. No, so you and I have to go back to a partial barter system where you sell your money for somebody who has the money that I want. And then you take that money from them and then you pay me. And that's essentially unsolving the money problem. So adding more currencies is not what the free market does. Money is not a market good. There's no provider of money and we see it with gold. We go toward the neutral money because people don't want to be using somebody else's money. It doesn't happen in the real world. We see the market is constantly rejecting shitcoins. You look at them, they're constantly losing value against Bitcoin. And essentially shitcoins you can think about them as being the tax we pay for so many stupid people buying Bitcoin early and getting rich. So people buy Bitcoin early for wrong reasons. They don't know what's going on. They take a bet on it and then it goes up and they become become really rich from it. And then they're highly likely to fall for another scam like uh, a shitcoin and then put their money in it. And there's a lot of these people that are in Bitcoin, have a lot of Bitcoin and then try out the next Bitcoin. And so by giving their Bitcoin to the shitcoiners, that allows the shitcoiners to make a market in their shitcoin. But then after it gets listed, initially there's the pump phase where they're publicizing it and then promoting it and it's marketing and a lot of people are being drawn into it. And now all of the new money is being drawn into it. But then afterwards, the market will have its way. The demand for this one particular shitcoin, there's no way that it can keep with, you know, maybe this thing will revolutionize uh, video streaming and then my currency will be worth a zillion. There's none of that stupidity in Bitcoin. Well, of course there is. There are still people buying Bitcoin for the wrong reason. And you can see this from institutional investors. Institutional investors are putting in tons of money into Bitcoin and practically zero into the shitcoins because there's no case for investing in shitcoins. There's no coherent case for anybody to invest in shitcoins. But you see it with Bitcoin because there's this constant new money. That means that the shitcoins are essentially cannibalizing each other. They're not cannibalizing Bitcoin. People used to say that the more shitcoins get made, the more you will dilute Bitcoin's value proposition and the more you will inflate the supply of Bitcoin. And some people said, you know, Bitcoin is not inflationary, but Bitcoin and shitcoins are inflationary because the shitcoins dilute the market value of Bitcoin. And I don't think that is the case. I think shitcoins dilute shitcoins. That's the problem. So you can pump Ethereum or EOS or Ripple or any of these um, scams initially and the price goes up and then because you know people come in at that point because there's a lot of buzz you buy the press release and you buy the twitter influencers and you get on all the bitcoiners feeds and you start telling the bitcoiners about how you know bitcoin is actually slow but our shitcoin is better there's a peak period for each one of these where they have this concerted effort and it is a concerted effort by an organization that's almost like a private company and you pump it but then afterward you have to compete with all the other shitcoins for the new churn of the new supply of uh, people who don't know what they're doing. And <laughs> it's uh, there's still a lot of money coming into the space overall. And so there are a lot of people that will fall into them. We'll still keep getting more money going into shitcoins, but there's more shitcoins for it to go into. You know, so you have Ethereum is was the... Um, <laughs> Was, was the asshole from which the shitcoins sprang for a very long time. And there's a lot of shitcoins coming out of there. But all of their buzzwords are being co-opted by other stupid shitcoins like Cardano and EOS. And so 
the kind of people who fall for Ethereum is going to revolutionize smart contracts because Ethereum has blah, 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 Turing complete, blah, 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 and all this bunch of other buzzwords. If you're likely to fall for that, you're also likely to fall for whatever stupid buzzwords they're using with Cardano these days. And that continues to cannibalize itself. And so the supply of shitcoins overall continues to be inflationary. And none of them can command the monetary premium that continues to increase over time because none of them has a clear use case. All of their buzzwords make no sense. The only use case in the entire space is the Bitcoin use case as a hard money, as a sound money, as a, as, as a free market money, as a money with a limited supply. That market has been cornered. Like they're not even trying to compete with it. So at some point, there were a bunch of Ethereum um, influencers who were trying to say something along the lines that uh, Ethereum is better gold than Bitcoin and Ethereum is better Bitcoin than Bitcoin. But narrative is gone because Ethereum having a bunch of coders in charge and they're constantly hard forking. And so they can never claim that you know the supply is fixed they could never be able to claim that the supply really is immutable so the monetary premium for a store of value for money that will attract value where people will sit on that value is exclusively going into bitcoin almost bitcoins continuously decline individually and collectively they continue to decline except for the fact that there's a very large number of new coins that are being churned out every day the way to think about it is bitcoin now is such a large market around a trillion dollars if you wanted to add to the Bitcoin market cap, you wanted to add a few million dollars, you need to be buying a significant amount of Bitcoin in order to pump the price. Specifically, with each dollar increase in the market cap, there needs to be an equivalent increase in somebody demanding Bitcoin in their cash balance. Because if there isn't, somebody else will sell. So even if you buy a million dollars, you raise the price, but then raising the price might cause a lot of people to want to sell, and then the price goes back down. So with Bitcoin, it's very hard. It's not hard. It's, it's impossible to manipulate the price upward because the market is so large and there's so many people who buy and sell that your only way of manipulating is to actually buy Bitcoin and hold it. And that involves a real cost. You know, you have to give up dollars and buy Bitcoin. But with shitcoins, it's very trivial to manipulate the supply because especially the smaller shitcoins, like if you list the shitcoin right now, you know, you, you can do wash trading and... You know, you have two bots trading with one another, buying at a specific price, and you can manufacture liquidity and a price for a few hours that creates a buzz and then gets a bunch of people to buy in. Being able to generate this is far, far easier when you have a small market, when the whole supply of the coin is controlled by a few people. So if you have currency where, you know, a couple of people control the entire supply and then trade a small fraction of the supply at an inflated price, and that creates the illusion that the currency has a market cap that is much larger. If you go beyond the 100 shitcoin more or less, maybe in terms of the liquidity size, this is basically what's going on there. There's just a constant churn of tiny little shit coins being pumped with very tiny liquidity with their price rising. And then they show up on the market cap website and they appear as if there's real liquidity there. So because we're constantly adding more of these, it appears that Bitcoin dominance, the ratio of the Bitcoin liquidity to the rest of their liquidity the liquidity of the shitcoin industrial complex. It appears that, you know, currently it's around 67%, I think last I checked, somewhere in that range, 60 to 70%. Um, it appears that, you know, Bitcoin is 60 to 70% of the market, but 
really Bitcoin is in reality more like 90, 95% in terms of your liquidity because the, the majority of that liquidity is just wash trading on exchanges meant to pump up numbers. And that's easy to do with very tiny uh, shitcoins. Obviously, you can't make a tiny shitcoin into a trillion dollar shitcoin by manipulating the trading. But if you have, there's like 10,000 coins now out there. If each one for a few million dollars, that's a lot of millions of dollars. And that shows up as if it's real liquidity. But in reality, you know, all these shit coins that have very little liquidity, they're just being traded as gambling on uh, websites. And you can think about it as basically competing with sports gambling. You know, people bet on obscure shitcoin number 5,328 uh, in the same way that they bet on horses or uh, sports events. But you can't really say that this uh, shitcoin is offering any kind of real liquidity on the market that anybody who holds it is able to sell it easily, especially if you start holding larger quantities of it. If you start trying to sell it, uh, your majority of shitcoins round down to zero. They, they should be rounded down to zero. To go back to the original scaling question that um, other shitcoins can help us, there's no incentive to adopt other shitcoins because of monetary effects. And the easier monies, you know, in the case of shitcoins, they can't even credibly demonstrate that their supply is real. It's entirely plausible that some shitcoins will have moments of inflationary expansion that, you know, they get together the miners and the coders and they hard fork because all shitcoins can be hard forked really. And um, there's no guarantee that it won't happen. And I think, you know, people learn that lesson eventually. And it's happened with some of the smaller coins that, you know, people are holding it and then suddenly they print, the people behind it print an enormous quantity and they start dumping it on exchange and then the price collapses. And then the people that are holding end up uh, holding nothing. This has happened many, many times. So there's no reason to trust any of the monetary policy behind any of them. And the real monetary demand is going to continue to flow to Bitcoin. And to go back to the issue of scaling, ultimately, what's going to happen, whether it was with Bitcoin or with gold or with um, government money, is that the consumer payments are going to be separate from the uh, settlement payments. This is just always going to be the case. There's not going to be a monetary system, according to the inventions that we've seen, where you buying a coffee for $3 from the store next door is going to move actual physical or, you know, move the actual monetary unit in final settlement, complete and final settlement from your hand to the hand of the recipient. It's not possible with any technology. Yeah, it was possible when people used gold coins and silver coins, but that's, these days are gone. Nobody's going to be using silver and gold anymore physically for reasons discussed extensively in the Bitcoin standard and in the fiat standard in the uh, early chapters, which you can get uh, by subscribing to safetydean.com. So nobody has a reason to be, we're not going to be using physical uh, gold and silver. If we were to go on a gold standard or a silver standard today, it's not going to be with physical coins. It's going to be gold or silver coins and bars stored at banks. And when you're going to make your payment, it's going to be with a uh, with your phone or with checkbook or with a credit card or with a debit card. And your bank will take the $5 from your account and the recipient's bank would credit credit them the $5 and then two banks will settle amongst each other depending on uh, what kind of arrangement they have. And then maybe at the end of the week or month, 
or maybe even at the end of the year, there will be a movement of physical gold from one bank to the other. It's not going to happen. We're not going to physically move gold every time you buy coffee. Similarly with government money, when you give your, uh, when you give your credit card or your debit card to the coffee place and they take $5 from your bank, again, it's not government credit that's going to be allocated immediately. It's not going to be finally settled in that moment. You know, you're going to lose the $5 from your account. They are going to get $5 in their account, but it's still going to be another phase or weeks or months before the two banks finally have finalized the settlement between one another. They're going to batch it with a whole bunch of other transactions and, you know, the accounts being debited with the Federal Reserve or the, or the Central Bank will take some time. You're not going to get final settlement with fiat or with gold or with Bitcoin. In my mind, it's false advertising. It's, it's, it, and it's, you know, a lot of the early Bitcoin uh, evangelists mis-evangelized Bitcoin on the basis that it's just going to rid you of the inconveniences of credit cards, that Bitcoin is is just a better visa. And I think that has really set us back a long time. Well, not really set us back because, you know, nothing can stop Bitcoin. But it's set a lot of people back in their understanding of Bitcoin because they keep expecting it to just be a cheaper, perfect visa with no trade-offs. And it isn't. We're not, it, it's, it does nothing to solve the problems of visa. Well, maybe not nothing. It helps. Um, but, you know, Ultimately, whatever we're going to be doing with the base money, Bitcoin can't do it. None of the shitcoins can do it. Gold can't do it. Silver can't do it. Government money even can't do it. We're going to need a settlement layer as exists in the fiat system today. You know, you have the Fedwire or you have the uh, Swift, uh, the Fedwire or there's the um, the European one is called, uh, I forget, RTGS, Euro RTGS or something like that. But this is the settlement layer. And then there are the consumer facing layers. We're going to have something similar with Bitcoin, inevitably. And no shitcoin can um, claim differently. Like there isn't a shitcoin where they can have final settlement with each coffee transaction. And the only ones that claim this are basically just lying straight up. We can't have final settlement on a shitcoin. If they're going to help Bitcoin scale, they're still going to be utilizing second layer solutions. But why would anybody want to build a second layer solution on an inferior shitcoin that doesn't have Bitcoin's monetary assurance? I mean, at that point, the original argument about the monetary aspects and the monetary properties is what makes uh, makes this even more pronounced at this point. And why would anybody want to build a payment network on a monetary system that is easy for a small group of people to change? Like, I mean, uh, government money is better at least because even government money, it's not very easy for people to manipulate it. Like, of course, you know, central banks and governments do a terrible job of managing it. But it's much harder for uh, central banks and governments, even in dysfunctional places, it's much harder for them to abuse the currency than it is for a couple of guys who programmed a shitcoin in their basement. It's just much easier uh, for shitcoins. So there's not going to be any potential in my mind for scaling through shitcoins. Scaling for Bitcoin and consumer layer transactions are going to come from, the question is, is going to be native Bitcoin native solutions or is it going to be an importation of fiat native solutions with Bitcoin integrated at the back end. Uh, Visa said this in a press release a few weeks ago. Visa said that uh, they're considering uh, adding a Bitcoin. And they make a very good point. And I've spoken to the Visa crypto team. They get it. They're very much uh, understand the Bitcoin value proposition. And they've gone through their uh, studying the shitcoins phase. And the press release said, 
we already clear 160 currencies. We have 160 currencies where we can accept payment with them. Adding Bitcoin would just be another one. And so if they move from 160 currencies to 161 currencies, they can accept Bitcoin. Now they'll need a custody solution and they'll need to carry out their own transactions and they'll be settling Bitcoin with people. Um, you know, the, there are a lot of questions to be answered about how that's going to be arranged and how you send them Bitcoin and how they send you Bitcoin. But all of these transactions, which are going to be done on the blockchain, with on the Bitcoin blockchain, are going to be an infinitely tiny percentage of the number of Bitcoin transactions that you can do with Visa. So Visa already does the 2,000 transactions per second. All of these could become Bitcoin transactions, you know, and you'll have a much smaller amount of uh, settlement transactions being done between Visa and other uh, financial institutions and between them and individuals. This is one possibility that uh, fiat payment rails like a Visa, MasterCard, and Venmo and PayPal will install Bitcoin and then they will allow their clients to start making payments with Bitcoin. That's one possibility. But then there's the other possibility, which is Bitcoin native solutions. And I think are probably in the long run. You can see why this is likely to have the advantage. So in particular, Lightning seems to be the most promising in this regard. It's a very smart idea. And I talk about it in the fiat standard. I'll be talking about it in the forthcoming chapters. It's in my mind better suited as a scaling solution for Bitcoin because it's native on Bitcoin and because it's likely to attract more and more liquidity because it is Bitcoin native over time. I think fiat payment processors have a much bigger advantage in terms of the starting, you know, first mover advantage. They already have networks of billions of people signed up to all of these services and used to the interface, used to the way things work. The most important thing about Visa's business is the tens of thousands of merchants they have relationships with all over the world. Like this is what their business has been doing. And the merchants and the customers and the millions of customers all over the world that they have records for that they know how you know how much you buy how much you spend and you've been dealing with them for 20 years and you're used to dealing with them and the merchants that deal with them you know they've managed to build all of these networks of liquidity all over the world with businesses and that's enormously valuable in terms of the network effects and it's enormously valuable for consumers and for uh, retailers but you know in the long run i think you can see how as people become more and more familiar with bitcoin will uh, move towards things like Lightning. In fact, Visa will probably be running uh, Lightning. This is how I see it. You can think about Visa as being a good example of what uh, Lightning nodes would be. Like Visa would run enormous number of Lightning nodes all over the world. And it would essentially onboard its customers and its relationships and its business capital and business expertise. They would onboard that onto Bitcoin Lightning Network as the liquidity on the network increases. And I can't really see any role for shit points in that. The syllabus for my new online economics course, Principles of Economics, is now available on safedean.com. The course will take place over 18 lectures, each based on one chapter from my new book, Principles of Economics, which will be available for free as an ebook for everyone registering for the course. Lectures will be released once every two weeks on Mondays, starting on the 25th of September, 2023, and will be available in video and audio format. Live discussion seminars will be held once a week on Thursdays at alternating time slots, 12 hours apart, to ensure learners can attend from all over the world. I'm happy to announce that I have set up my new publishing house and online bookstore, The Safe House. 
which will be publishing and delivering the best Bitcoin and Austrian economics books worldwide in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook formats. Go to thesafehouse.com to buy my latest book, Principles of Economics, as well as the Fiat Standard and the Bitcoin Standard. And now I'm also publishing Fiat Food, Matthew Lishak's amazing investigation into how inflation ruined our diet and health. And I'm also publishing Lynn Alden's Broken Money, her masterful exploration of the failures of the global financial system and how Bitcoin fixes it. This is a Bitcoiner's bookshop, so the books are printed in beautiful cloth hardcover made to last with an ice-colored dust jacket on top. Go to thesafehouse.com and get yours now. After listening to you, an idea came to my mind, which is maybe we can think of Visa, MasterCard, American Express, and so on, as altcoins of sorts in the following sense. When you go buy coffee using your credit card, you're not really moving dollars or euros from one part to another. Sure, in the network, there are dollars and euros and so on. But at the very moment of the transaction, we are moving, let's say, Visa tokens or something like that. There are digits, numbers, bits and bytes that correspond to certain amounts of dollars. And that's what we do at the very moment. And then afterwards, there is the settlement. So in, in a sense, in a loose sense, they work kind of like altcoins already. They already have a very robust system, which uses cryptography for sure. Not the very best cryptography, nothing compared to Bitcoin. It's not the thing that any amateur can go there and break the code, right? And, and it's being used all over the world already. In order for any shitcoin to do the same, that shitcoin would need to have a size of the supply which is known and immutable, because otherwise the exchange rate between Bitcoin and that altcoin is anybody's guess. So that altcoin would need to have an immutable supply size and a very robust security safe uh, network, which everybody can trust. This is not the case of any shitcoin out there. Let me just interrupt for a second. I think I disagree with that. Uh, you can't really say that uh, Visa is an altcoin for a very important difference, which is that Visa is effectively like a stable coin of the dollar because you're mm -hmm. paying me in your Visa coins but your Visa coins are redeemable for dollars and redeemable for dollars outside of Visa. So I receive the money from Visa because you paid me and I take it out in dollars. Whereas with altcoins, and what you said is we need to have the supply fixed. But if we had, if we had the supply for altcoins fixed and it was credible, it's still not going to be stable in value compared to Bitcoin. It's going to oscillate against Bitcoin. So in that case, it would not be able to use serve as a Visa-like uh, network because Visa runs on the fact that it is that it is 100% redeemable in non-Visa dollars. And that's not the case for altcoins. What might make sense for altcoins is if they would become Bitcoin stable coins. Mm -hmm. And I think, economically, I think this makes sense because a lot of these altcoins, the way that they launched is that they sold their own token for Bitcoin. And so the founders are sitting on a ton of Bitcoin. Altcoins are out there trading. And the interesting thing here is that many of these altcoins now, their market valuation is much smaller. The total market cap of the altcoin is much smaller than the entire, the, the, the market value of the Bitcoin that they have in their treasuries. Because all these shitcoins are losing value, bleeding value next to Bitcoin. 
And so therefore, there comes a point at which the value of all the coins in circulation is smaller than the Bitcoin behind it. So in that situation, the people who are running the shitcoin could actually significantly pump its price by simply making it redeemable in Bitcoin. In other words, if you if you just say, all right, we have, say, 100,000 Bitcoins and we have an outstanding supply of 100 million of our coins. So then 1,000 of our coin is equal to one Bitcoin. And if you give us 1,000 of our coin, we'll send you one Bitcoin. If you do that, you immediately raise the price of the shitcoin. I imagine for many of these shitcoins, you would actually raise the price because the shitcoin is not worth as much as the Bitcoin that is backing it. Well, it's not really backing it now. So if you were to make it backing it, you would have a shitcoin stablecoin for Bitcoin. While it makes sense in economic terms, I think the impediment for this is legal and practical, which is in order to make this peg enforceable, you need to have somebody managing the treasury of the Bitcoins and making a market in the shitcoin and Bitcoin. And so, you know, you're sitting there and you're telling people, I will always buy uh, Bitcoin from you at 1,000 and always sell Bitcoin at 1,000 of my coin. But if you do that, you're basically issuing a security I think in that situation, it's going to likely look like a security. And I think you would probably get, you might get into trouble with the SEC. I think that might be the problem there. Because then you can't really pretend that the altcoin is decentralized. Or maybe you wouldn't be able to. Maybe you would. You know, if you set some of these coins aside for lawyer fees, you might be able to do it. I'm not so sure this is feasible, but I think this is the one example to go back to Ahmed's question. This is maybe the one example where you could say they could help in scaling in a sense, because you could have, you'd have the shitcoins serve as a stable coin. And of course, you know, the security is not as good as the Bitcoin security, but maybe it's a trade-off that uh, some people are willing to have because nothing is going to have a security of a Bitcoin transaction and nobody can afford, well, not nobody, but we won't have a lot of people being able to afford Bitcoin uh, security. So people will look for alternatives and maybe this is one of them. I pretty much uh, agree with what you said. L let me just clarify something. When, when I said, well, maybe Visa is some kind of altcoin, I said an altcoin of sorts. It's really not an, an altcoin, but it's playing the role of what the best altcoin would be. And as you said, the very best altcoin that we could possibly have is an altcoin that has a fixed supply and the network is safe enough, so we trust it. But in order for any altcoin to do that, we need to have this guarantee that nobody's going to mess up with it. And maybe Visa can do much better in this regard. Centralizing everything, pegging it to, to Bitcoin, having a network that does all this very fast and efficiently. So the very best altcoin we could possibly imagine is something that Visa can do pretty much. So Yeah, here. no, that's a great point. I think ultimately they can't be anywhere near as good as Visa at doing what they do. Like Visa is a business. How old is Visa? Anybody know? They've been at it for decades. I know that for sure. And for decades, they've been building relationships with retailers and with customers and keeping track of everybody and making, you know, figuring out who's a good credit risk and who's a bad credit risk. And, you know, <laughs> shitcoins have none of that. They don't have the real world business dealing with this kind of size. And so they don't really have anything to offer in that regard. They can offer a small number of transactions 
in another unit of account as it stands. I think if they wanted to scale, they would want to switch to uh, Bitcoin standard, basically, by backing their currencies with Bitcoin. And then they might have, you know, they, they might have something to offer to, uh, in terms of scaling, but it won't be much because there's just not that much capacity on top of them, I think. Yeah, exactly. So the, the best that an altcoin can do is to be a stable coin for Bitcoin. But Visa can do it much better. So that, that's about it. But uh, just one last comment. I liked something you said. Shitcoins are not diluting Bitcoin. They're diluting other shitcoins. I, I agree with that, but I would like to add something. When we look at the total market cap of so-called cryptocurrency market, there's quite a lot of money put into all those shitcoins. Maybe it's not diluting Bitcoin, but it's diluting the market cap of other assets to some extent. And of course, at first, I used to think this was a bad thing. Like, oh, it could, could you imagine if all this money were put into Bitcoin, it would be so much better, no such noise happening. But now I, I'm looking at this from a more optimistic perspective. It's kind of like, okay, the money is getting out of gold and real estate and stocks and so on, and it's going to this crap, this bunch of shit coins. But eventually, when people realize that this has no future, all those people are going to migrate to somewhere else. Part of this money is going to go back to real estate, gold, and so on. And A lot of them are going to migrate to poverty, unfortunately. Let's be honest. What? A lot of them are going to migrate to poverty. There's not going to be anywhere yeah, to migrate. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, because most of those coins are going to be worth very, very little. But probably there's still going to be some good chunk of money out there ready to migrate back to stocks or to Bitcoin. And the people who were considering having those shitcoins, or they, they have like 1% or 2% of Ethereum in their portfolio and so on, and they're thinking about increasing the size, they're going to say, oops, no, I'm going to Bitcoin. So maybe in the long run, this is good for Bitcoin. It's, it's the sort of social experiment we need to have. This is kind of competition. It's kind of necessary in order for everybody to figure out that Bitcoin is the real thing. Yeah, and I think there's another aspect of, well, maybe I'm not so optimistic about this. This uh, it's, it's not that people, uh, I, I think the amount of money that goes into shitcoin will probably be less than comes out of them. No, sorry, more than what comes out of them because they're going to go down and people will learn that lesson after they've lost significant chunk and then they buy less Bitcoin than they would have bought initially. However, the real positive of shitcoins is that they're not cannibalizing Bitcoin's market value. In fact, they're probably adding to it because shitcoins do their own marketing. Bitcoin doesn't have a marketing department. There's no, uh, there's nobody going around uh, making glossy pamphlets to give out to people and doing giveaways of Bitcoin. Nobody does Bitcoin giveaways anymore. But they do those things for shitcoins and it's... You know, they do incredibly good marketing for a lot of these shitcoins. You know, give them, um, to give them their due, that's what they have going for them. They've got great marketing. That draws a lot of people who otherwise wouldn't have ever looked at Bitcoin. It draws them into the crypto space. And I, I've seen this happen over and over again, that, you know, somebody goes in because they heard about this, uh, you know, their friend told them about this and they saw a few video and they got drawn into one of the altcoins. 
and they get into the space. But then after a while, they start smelling something fishy about the altcoin and they start getting exposed to Bitcoin and they start hearing about Bitcoin and Bitcoin starts to smell different. You know, Bitcoin's fresh, the altcoin is stale. A lot of these people find out about Bitcoin, learn about it properly. A lot of that is because they had heard of the shitcoin originally. So I think like everything on this planet, this is good for Bitcoin. You can't do anything that is bad for uh, honest, hard, best money. Like it's it's going to win. And so all your moves are you know, basically Bitcoin has the world in checkmate effectively by being the best money. And so, you know, you can choose to submit or you can choose to fight and give it um, more uh, fuel to get stronger. It's hard to see something that's bad for Bitcoin happen. I enjoy being in the world of Bitcoin is because you don't need to ask anybody of anything. There's no activism here. Immediately turned off anybody who likes to treat Bitcoin as a form of activism. I don't find it useful because, you know, if Bitcoin needed us to behave in a certain way in order for it to work and succeed, then it's already uh, failed. Bitcoin works because of economic incentives and people buy it because they benefit from it, not because they want to live in a better world and not because, well, I'm sure a lot of them do, but that on its own would not be enough to get us where we want to go. Like if Bitcoin didn't have its unique and proprietary number go up technology, then we're not going to mobilize the planet around all of, uh, you know, taking money out of the hands of government. We're not going to mobilize the planet to do this out of activism. You know, we're not going to manage to pull it off. If it's going to be pulled off, if it's going to happen, if it's going to happen because people are signing up because they benefit from it, because they will gain from it. And so it's liberating because you don't have to fight anything. You just go along with it and you watch economic incentives do their things. And this is ultimately why Bitcoiners are perceived to be so toxic and so hostile. It's because, you know, People come at Bitcoin expecting that, you know, your their feelings matter, that we need to sit there and win them over. No, 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 no. You have to win me over. I want to join Bitcoin, but, you know, you have to... <laughs> You have to make me feel special. Everybody wants to be made to feel special. And the reality is Bitcoin doesn't give a shit about anybody. And Bitcoiners don't have to give a shit about anybody. Um, if you join, you benefit. If you don't want to join, <laughs> that's your problem. You know, you can't threaten people uh, that, you know, I won't join your thing. I'm going to impoverish myself. I'm going to continue to use inferior technology unless the people who use the better technology are nice to me. A lot of people act like this. And it's exactly as idiotic as saying, you know, <laughs> the computer community is toxic because a bunch of computer users made fun of me once. And I'm not going to use a computer anymore ever again. I'm going to stick to abacuses and I'm going to go bring back my typewriter. And that'll show them. That'll show those meanies. That'll show those awful, awful meanies. <laughs> that I can't be taken for granted. I'm not just going to join your superior technological revolution just because you guys have the best technology. No. This is exactly what it feels like uh, when you hear people uh, complaining about Bitcoin as being toxic. You may as well be complaining about knife holders and wheel owners and car owners. It's a technology that anybody can use and people don't use it because they're part of a community. You know, we didn't have to, at any point in time, there was no wheel community that went around nicely 
evangelizing the wheel to others and trying to tell everybody, hey, you know, if you use a wheel, your life would be much better. Instead of slaving away all day, you know, come and use the wheel and make you better. No, when people saw the wheel, they wanted to copy it themselves. They wanted to do it and they wanted to use it. And that's the case with Bitcoin. That's why people join. They benefit from it. It's sad to see the people that don't get that, that think that, you know, Bitcoin needs them and that, you know, I'm not so convinced about Bitcoin because you guys sound rude and you guys are too toxic or whatever it is. And that's why, you know, Bitcoiners respond with have fun staying poor. Bitcoin is the best technology for fighting poverty that has ever been invented on an individual and global scale. This is our best tool for fighting poverty. So (laughs) if you can be bullied out of it by a couple of people being mean to you on Twitter... Congratulations, you, you, you win your prize for winning this contest is that you don't have any more Bitcoin. <laughs> Enjoy it. <laughs> what else is up? Um, I was asking about ETFs. The, I know there's like a couple of, oh, oh, across the world, but I guess there's some hype about the US um, ETFs for Bitcoins coming out. Are these types of vehicles in like the stock, like ratio, are they even worth um, holding or is it just build your own wallet and you know stack that way i'm just curious of what you guys think about those types of things the way that i see it obviously is uh the, the best thing to do is to have uh, your own bitcoin have uh, to hold your own bitcoin um, but i mean well i i I, sh- I shouldn't really say that i can't decide for other people what works best for them so there are there is that temptation to say that you know not your keys not your bitcoin and you should only hold bitcoin if if you have the private keys on your own and a lot of people uh, are very um strict about this but you know uh, a lot of people also don't want that a lot of people don't want to hold their own keys a lot of people prefer to have them with custodians and uh, it's, um, you know, who am I to tell people what works best for them? And there definitely are cases where it is better to be in these uh, um, situations. So institutional investors can't just, a lot of investors have their own charters and, and their own direction for what they can invest in on behalf of their investors. They have a fiduciary duty to invest according to specific standards. And they can't just go and, um, you know, buy a hardware wallet and put uh, 80% of their uh, holders' uh, money on it. Uh, You know, there are different solutions that you can have institutional custody if you want, but another one of these is an ETF, which offers the added benefit of the fact that it is tradable. It's much more liquid than, than, than having your own coins locked up with custody. So for people who want to get in and out of a position quickly, that might make sense. For people who don't have access to other forms of holding Bitcoin, this makes sense. And it's tempting to, you know, do the, say the, say the correct, uh, uh, <laughs> the, the Bitcoin politically correct thing, which is, you know, you hold your own keys. And I think, you know, obviously there are, there's an enormous case for that in terms of uh, your own security, that uh, there are risks involved when others hold your keys for you. But there are also risks involved when you hold your own keys. And Bitcoin is growing now to the point where custody solutions that are used in the mainstream financial markets are used for Bitcoin. So it's only natural that we'll see an ETF. And we saw the one that opened in Canada has done an incredible job over the last few months. The last few weeks, I think, is when it's launched. They're up to about 10,000 Bitcoins already in a few weeks. 
So I think there's an enormous demand for it because there's a lot of money that can't get into other forms of Bitcoin that will uh, get into ETFs. But you know, uh, so far we've not heard uh, we've not heard anything about what the likelihood of any of the ETFs being approved in the U.S. We'll see. The new SEC seems to hopefully, maybe, potentially, who knows, seems to be more. Uh, uh, more in tune with what is going on with Bitcoin. So we'll see. Any other questions? Yeah, as of yesterday, they're up to 11,394 in the uh, Canadian ETF, which is uh, quite something. Uh, you know, currently the, the options for American investors who want to get into something like an ETF, the, uh, the, the options right now, the best one I think is, well, I don't know if it's the best, but I think, uh, you know, you could go to Grayscale, but the way that Grayscale is structured and the fees that are on Grayscale are pretty, uh, are pretty high. Um, they've managed to get their own fund uh, through, but most ETF applications so far have not gone through. So because there isn't an ETF, it's, uh, they're able to charge a very high fee. It's, it's hard to see this dynamic surviving long that you'll just continue to have this one entity able to offer Bitcoin to the market while nobody else can do it because then they're just being given a massive regulatory edge basically which they can monetize. So uh, we'll see. I think most likely we're going to be started to start seeing more of these ETFs pop up in the US. You know, in Gold Walls, the author explains um, how the IMF and central banks have uh, manipulated the gold price for years in the 80s, 90s, and so on, in order to, to make fiat look good and, and sustainable as a system, and so on. And basically, uh, if I understand what uh, the author says, they, they were able to do that because they had huge gold holdings in the first place. So I am mistaken if uh, I imagine that they couldn't do the same thing with Bitcoin, or do you think it's the case? And, and do you think at some point we could see central banks accumulate big Bitcoin just in order to try to make it crash or make the market in turmoil? I think you know ultimately uh, the most important ways in which bitcoins uh, in which gold is manipulated if you want to call it manipulated is uh, through the fact that central banks confiscated the gold when they confiscated it that means that they can um, buy and sell in the market and they have enormous amount of leverage on the market and currently central banks own about a sixth of the world's gold um, around a sixth of all of the world's gold is in uh, um, central banks but the, the, maybe the more important way in which they can continue to uh, control the gold market, more important than the confiscation, well, it's not really more important because it is kind of, uh, it, it's highly related to the confiscation, is the fact that you can't have a, a, a market for clearing gold outside of banks and outside of central banks. That's really what it comes down to in my mind. In other words, even after the central banks confiscated gold, well, the reason they could confiscate gold was because the gold was so centralized. And the reason the gold was so centralized is because gold doesn't move easily. And so it's very expensive to move a gold bar across the Atlantic. It's expensive to move it across from one country to the other. And so you end up with payments and settlements happening over banks that effectively have a monopoly 
over this process. And because they have a monopoly over it, it's not possible for a gold market and gold banks to emerge outside of this. And so without that, it's not possible for people to take their gold elsewhere and use it because your gold without its bank is pretty useless outside of your neighborhood. Um, you know, it's, it's very expensive to pay it. And I talk about this in the fiat standard in chapter, I think it was chapter five on saleability and scale. It's the saleability across space. So gold excels in saleability across time. You can move gold easily across time. Uh, you can move value with gold well across time. It holds on to its value well across time. But its saleability across space is very bad. You can't, every time you try and move gold, it's expensive. And effectively, it loses uh, its value once it moves. So that means its clearance, as, as trade began to expand in the 19th and 20th century all over the world, and communication started to expand all over the world, doing final settlement with gold um, became more and more expensive which necessarily led to the emergence of banking networks that you had to keep your gold on it in order to make it fly. So imagine essentially banks are like the Bitcoin payment network and gold is like the Bitcoin token. You can't run a monetary system on gold without the payment network, without the banks, except something very small and very local, because otherwise it becomes very expensive to move the gold back and forth. The lack of saleability across space is why gold ends up being highly concentrated, so that when governments wanted to confiscate gold in the 1930s and 40s, we don't have many stories about violent confrontations in order to perform the confiscation, because the confiscation was pretty straightforward, because everybody's gold was already in the bank. And so all that happened was that the government went into the banks that uh, were already under government control and just told the people, well, you can't take your gold anymore. You're just going to be given paper. Effectively, that's how they confiscated it. So it was very straightforward because the gold was all concentrated. But once you move away from that, once they confiscated it, then what prevented the emergence of a free market and free banking in gold is the fact that you just can't do that. You can't set up a bank that clears gold. Banking is a monopoly. You need a, it's an oligopoly. You need a license from one monopoly body, which is the central bank in every government. And central banks all don't run on gold and don't approve banks that don't run on their national currencies. So you can't just go to a central bank and tell them, I want to set up a bank and I'm not going to deal with your shitcoin. I'm going to deal with gold only. And I'm going to be um, settling my gold internationally by taking bars of gold and shipping them uh, on uh, boats and airplanes. That won't happen. They won't let you. So for me, I think the key distinction with Bitcoin, between gold and Bitcoin, is that because of gold's much higher saleability across space, it's much harder to confiscate it because it's going to inevitably be far more distributed. In the central banking era, you know, each country had one central bank. But in the Bitcoin era, we're seeing many more Per country emerging. And so it's much harder to confiscate it because it's not one central bank and it's not all, the central banks are not under the government control. And secondly, and this is the key, is that, and related to the fact that it's not centralized, is because the money is very easy to move around, 
it's easy to build parallel settlement networks. So even if they do confiscate a whole bunch of other people's Bitcoin, if you still have your own coins, you can still send your own coins on the network and you can still use Lightning and you can still use, you can still send money from one person to another without having it to go through central bank approved institutions. So that's why I think ultimately Bitcoin has a better chance than gold. Gold's low saleability across space means that you have to get the government to agree to let you run it, agree to let you cross the border. There's no way around that. You can't have a monetary system built around going around government. You can't just have people smuggling gold for a monetary system. People get caught and it's unworkable. So you won't be able to do that with gold, but you can still do it with Bitcoin. Bitcoin does half a million transactions a day. And these can be international settlement transactions. So in my mind, this is, the, this is the trickiest part about controlling Bitcoin. So you can confiscate people's coins, but then so what? Other people can continue to operate on the network. And more than just that, like I think, um, you know, confiscation doesn't just happen overnight. And with Bitcoin, it's very easy to opt out. So in 1934, things were going bad, you couldn't just take your gold and send it to a bank in Switzerland and just uh, sit there. You know, it's, it's, it's very hard to do something like this. But today, particularly in democracies, where things need to kind of be discussed among politicians and approved before they happen, you're probably going to smell some smoke before the fire of confiscation comes along. And so if people suspect a little bit of the hint of confiscation coming along, a lot of money will be moving out of custodians and it's much easier to take it out of custodians. You know, you take it out of custodian and you put it on your hardware wallet, you put it in, or you, you memorize the seed or you send it to a custodian outside of your country. It becomes a much easier, uh, much easier solution, really. That's really the key point of the late, later, chap later chapters of the fiat standard. Marquita is saying in the chat, this is why Bitcoin will back gold. Actually, I think that's very, um, very profound. I think at some point, if gold continues to lose value in real terms, because it kind of is losing value, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's gone very little in the last uh, 10 years, while the dollar has been increasing in price, uh, increasing in supply and the prices of everything has been going up. So effectively, gold is becoming less and less of uh, the monetary value of the world. And if that continues, as I said in the previous uh, podcast on the stock to flow a few weeks ago, I was saying effectively that's how you could demonetize gold if the value drops and then it starts becoming affordable for industrial uses. It starts getting used more and more for industrial uses and then it starts that stuff that goes into industrial use is no longer part of the monetary stockpile. And so you can't part, count it as part of the stock. So the stock to flow declines. If this continues with gold, then I can see how we could have gold. We could go back to gold backed uh, to gold coins, but they would be gold coins backed by Bitcoin. And so, you know, we'd have something like the open dime, but it would be made out of gold because, you know, gold is more, uh, it's, it's, it's the king of the metals. It's, and there's no questioning that. And, uh, you know, you'll see Bitcoin backed gold where the price of the gold is a small part of the uh, value of the coin. And the private key would be encrypted into it in one way or the other. It could be physical or it could be digital. It could be something like an open dime 
inside a gold coin, or it could be something um, like the what these called the early things, the Kasaskis coins, whatever it is, Kaskasius. I can't, I can't remember their exact name, but yeah, I think, I think you're onto something, Marquita. I think we're gonna have Bitcoin-backed gold eventually. I can see how we'll go back to. I can see that, that whatever happens with Bitcoin, there will be room for physical Bitcoins. One way in which Bitcoin scales is physical Bitcoin. It's things like OpenDime are a great way for Bitcoin to scale. If you have a simple uh, device that you can verify quite easily, um, then moving this physically around becomes a way in which um, we can scale Bitcoin for smaller transactions, maybe, or maybe even for bigger transactions, like you'd have gold bar equivalents where you know one open dime is made out of gold and it's worth say the market value equivalent today of a million dollars. The gold that goes into it would be like $50 or $200 or $1,000 out of those millions. So practically nothing. But yeah, I think gold backed Bitcoin, I mean, Bitcoin backed gold sounds like a great idea, which would be uh, a fitting, a fitting development for all the people that have spent years telling us you should back Bitcoin with gold, you should back Bitcoin with gold. No, we're actually going to back gold with Bitcoin. That's the plan. You heard it here first. Marquita's monetary reform plan. <laughs> but hey, in order... Great idea. I like it. But in order for this to really work, wouldn't we need to have a good degree of certainty about the supply of gold and the supply of gold next year and next decade and so on so that the ratio no no because the gold supply of paper doesn't matter what matters is that the paper is redeemable for gold so like with fiat money what matters is that your paper is redeemable for the gold that's backing it so you don't care about um, the gold itself. In fact, say if, 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 the, if, the, uh, if the Bitcoin bar was worth a million dollars and the gold inside it was $100, like who cares if it was 100 or 80 or if you know, they put a little bit of tungsten inside it and it's actually 60, doesn't really matter. I think it would matter in terms of just quality of uh, production. Like if we're going to be using gold, it's going to be, it's not going to be worth it to lie with it because it's likely going to be, continue to become cheaper and cheaper. Yeah, but if, that is the case then it doesn't have to be gold i mean we need to have yeah not for its monetary purposes yeah, it's you have a, yeah but but then it's it, it's it's a fiduciary medium right and if we have a company a bank or a government or whatever which we trust and they have a public wallet and we know exactly how many bitcoins there are and they issue Something could be gold coins, could be papers or digital units in a network. Either one is going to work fine. It doesn't have to be gold, right? Yeah, but I mean, uh, it, it's, it's like paper. But, you know, instead of putting your million dollars worth of Bitcoin on uh, paper, you put it on a gold bar. I mean, it, it, it's, uh, it's better. It, it's not going to burn. It's not going to uh, be ruined by mold. And um, it's, it's, it's good, uh, it, it maintains its shape, it looks nice. I mean, I can see it as being, you know, you won't do it for like a small open dime that has the equivalent of $10, but you could, you could build it so that it is very secure. And it could also be made so that, you know, you would need to uh, melt the gold in order to get the private key. Like you can see some kind of, maybe something being developed like that, where you'd need to melt and process the gold in order to be able to crack the gold bar 
and get the private key. I can see a lot of, you know, once once gold is demonetized and the value is dropped significantly, I can see a lot of uh, I can see a lot of potential for gold in the monetary industry just because of its uh, physical properties, not its monetary properties. I see. By the way, another comment on gold. You just talked about sellability across space and time. For quite a while, those Wall Street guys keep making fun of gold bugs, saying that, oh, you guys are outdated. Gold used to be a good store of value, but it's no longer that. When you look at a window of time, which is like, whatever, 30, 40 years, it, it sure is a, a good store of value. But in, in a window of 10, 12 years, there are many cases where it doesn't hold its, its value because of the whole complexity of of the economy. Then I wonder, maybe one of the reasons for that is the lack of sellability across space of gold. Because nowadays in the current, in current times, gold is no longer a convenient medium of exchange when it comes to final settlement. And even for everyday usage, uh, if somebody wants to pay me with a gold coin, I don't know if that gold coin is real gold or not. So it could be the case that the lack of sellability across space of gold is making it over decades is making it less and less of something people want to use as money. And then the value is not being kept as in the 19th century. Right. Is, is that correct? Exactly. This is how I see it developing. It's, it's what happened with silver. And I see it happening with gold at a slower rate now. But basically, total amount of economic value that is parked in gold as a percentage of the world is declining. And I think this is like the last 10 years. This has been the case in the last 10 years. It wasn't so much the case in the previous 10 years. It was the case between 1980 and 19 and like the late 90s. But historically, it, the price of gold was going up. And of course, in the 70s, it went up a lot. So if you want to look at the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and 2000s together, if you want to take out that big spike in the 70s, arguably, you know, except for a few months in, 19, uh, in 1980, it was continuous increase in the market value of gold. Since then, you know, in the last 10 years, 2011, 2012, it's just been declining in, term, in, in real terms. And the, um, the result of this is that it becomes more affordable to use it in industry. It becomes, you know, if you're building an electronic device, gold at $1,500 is usable in your electronic device. But if gold was at $4,000, you wouldn't. So the fact that gold has not jumped up to $4,000 is why it's more likely to be used in electronic uh, applications. And that in turn makes it more likely that uh, if it does use, it does get used in industrial and electronic applications, that stuff's taken out of the stockpile. So now it's no longer a monetary metal primarily because people are doing things other than stacking gold bars with it. So if they're not stacking gold bars with it and they're using it, and if they're using it for industry, then it's a the stockpile is declining and so the stock to flow ratio is also declining it would be ironic if um this does indeed happen and after spending so many years being uh, a devout gold bug i end up uncovering the mechanism for how gold gets demonetized oh well all right well thank
Thank you very much for joining, guys, and uh, I will see you next week. Take care.